Okay, so today we are starting a new series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and it's called First because it's the first letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth. Um, I really like teaching through books of the Bible. It's sort of my preferred mode of teaching. I didn't always prefer that methodology. Probably 15 or 20 years ago, uh, I wasn't a part of this church, but had you have shown up to my previous church, there would have been a lot more what they call topical sermons. So for example, the last series that we did, Faith and Finances, that was a topical sermon series because we were looking at one topic, but we were pulling from uh, different parts of the Bible. So we weren't staying in one part of the Bible. We were holding up a topic and saying, how does the Bible show us how to think about these things and uh, live into its vision. What, what does the Bible teach on faith and finances? So this is going to be a different kind of series, where instead of looking at a topic, we're going to move through an entire book, probably over uh, a significant amount of time. First Corinthians is pretty dense, so to go a chapter a week is probably going to be too quick. So I'm kind of thinking probably two weeks for each chapter. So it's going to be around 30, 35 weeks in total. And I've really come to value that process of steeping and staying in a biblical text for a long time and allowing your understanding of that text to sort of build incrementally. So our last series was a topical series, but the process of landing in and staying sticking with and teaching through one book of the Bible is called expositional teaching. You are expositing, you're teaching through the book, kind of maybe not verse by verse, but certainly section by section. And you're doing that over an extended period of time. So just to sort of help wrap, uh, kind of get our, uh, shake the cobwebs off this morning, invite some interaction. Topical teaching series are really awesome. A lot of people love them. Many people prefer them, maybe. And then there are expositional series, and those expo expositional series hold a lot of advantages. And I'm wondering, just as you may be thinking about it, maybe you've never had it framed this way before, but now you're kind of going back and saying, oh yeah, I have seen the differences there, whatever. Um, what do you think the advantages are to teaching and learning expositionally, where we go through one whole book of the Bible instead of picking a topic and then pulling from all over. What, what, do, you, what do you imagine or what has been your experience and what are the advantages of engaging God's word like that? Good. Awesome. So if we just jump down into a particular book, a little section, might be a very famous Bible verse, and we pluck that out, and we pluck this out over here, we pluck this out over here, um, it can start to almost feel like the Bible is this big puzzle that we're trying to fit together, and it's harder to understand. It's harder to even understand sometimes what those verses are, because we can accidentally, well, I mean, maybe intentionally for some people, hopefully not, we can, we're kind of pulling them out of context, right? It's kind of like if, if, if Wendy wrote me a really long letter and I just pulled one line out of the letter and said, Wendy said this. I mean, 
that could be an accurate re representation of what she said. But if she was there, she might say, well, I wouldn't quite frame it like that because remember a few paragraphs before I was saying the reason why I'm saying this and then this is, and afterwards I kind of explain myself further here. So there's a bit more of a danger if we're just kind of plucking principles or truths from the Bible instead of sitting down in this book. And sitting down in a book helps to slow us down. And that can be helpful to really get a sense of grounding. What are other advantages, Wendy? Oh, interesting. Okay, so it's actually increased your faith, increased for you the trustworthiness of Scripture. And, oh, okay. Can I ask you to unpack, what? why is it surprising to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. So many thoughts there. Um, I'm really encouraged to hear that you are discovering the scripture as a coherent story, as a full story, because when we quote from different books, sometimes, if that's our only diet of teaching, it can feel like the Bible is sort of a really big, complex, um, sort of spiritual insight slot machine that we're pulling from, right? And it's like, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to organize this stuff together. And, you know, God can certainly do that sometimes. Um, but that's not the way that the Bible was given to us, right? The Bible is given to us with a beginning and a flow of the narrative. And if we don't learn to appreciate that, Again, our understanding can stay very low. Or if all we're exposed to is pastors like me who say, I'm talking about these things. And over the course of a year, two years, five years, you kind of hear the same 70% verses come up again and again. What does that do? Um, what's the impression that might give in a negative sense? Totally. Only some of the Bible's important. I mean, it's all important, right? But like, let's just be honest. There's like the real stuff, the main stuff. And by inference, you don't really need to pay attention to the other stuff. And so what the pastor unconsciously can begin to be for people is the filter through which I don't have to waste my time with all the stuff that's like, wah, wah. Just give me the goods. Go down to the end point. Give me the... the, the um, the, the real the real meat, strain out all the other stuff. But that's not the way the Bible speaks about itself. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and, and equipping God's people for a life of service and dedication. So when we don't sit in a text for a long time and we just jump all over, it can actually lead to unintentionally a bit more of a superficial faith. We skip over passages that God intends to use to challenge his church 
Um, well, for example, what is... Uh, give me three major... You don't have to cha quote chapter and verse. Just three major passages from the book of 1 Corinthians. That's Romans. Romans. Very good. That's Romans. First Corinthians. You've got yeah, you've got the love one. That's the one everyone does at weddings. We got that one. Okay, okay. So this whole discussion about meat sacrifice to idols and food and what should Christians eat? How should they eat? How is that connected to whether those um, sacrifices of meat were connected to idolatry or not. Do we have a third? Straining? Spiritual gifts, good, yeah. First Corinthians 12. So in a whole room, it took us a little bit of time to kind of pull down insights and passages from a 16-chapter book. It's, it's one of Paul's largest letters. And what that means is Probably there's a lot of chapters that we've skipped over, we've um, read and kind of said, I don't really get it. And then there are these ones that stand out to us. But I want to teach through this book because this was a letter given to churches trying to figure out, okay, we're new to the faith, we're living in this really I'm not, very anti-Christian environment. And we're trying to understand how does the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, the hope that we have in Christ, change how we live now in very practical ways. Every part of this book is really important. Now, before we get into the first few verses of this book, in light of what we just talked about, what would be ways that you could see being beneficial to say, okay, instead of just being like, oh, new teaching series, new Sunday, whatever, uh, here we go, to intentionally pause and say, I want to have this series be one that I dig a little bit deeper. That I'm not just showing up and listening to Jeff or whoever else is speaking during the series and like that's it. If I wanted to deepen my engagement, enrich my interaction and my wrestling with the text, what would be things that I could do differently? Maybe this series, maybe I'm, I'm not accustomed to doing in previous series. What would be ideas for someone who says, I wanted to do more than just show up on Sunday and listen. What would be some of those next level things that would just help you or maybe a person to go a little bit deeper into this text? What would be some ideas? Could be small ideas, could be big ideas. Google what? Okay, awesome. Yeah, do some Google foo, do some little uh, investigation around some things, make note of things on Sunday. We're like, that's interesting. That's what, what's going on there. And just start doing a, a first level of investigation, getting curious about the text, especially ones that are strange or when you start getting into, um, Paul's going to talk about the baptism of the dead. That sounds freaky. What's going on there? That'll, that'll lead you down a crazy rabbit trail. Uh, what are other things that you can do to dig deeper in this series to make it more meaningful and engaging? I heard some voices over here. I don't know who it was, though. 
small group. Yeah, get involved with either another person through this series and say, hey, let's connect every week or two and talk about what we're learning, talk about what's perplexing, what's interesting, or maybe do it in a small group setting and say, for the length of this series, I'm gonna sort of plug into this group and wrestle through these things with other people. I host a, a small group here on Monday nights, 6.45 to 8, it's very short. All we do is kind of like review the message very quickly and say, what stood out to you? What are questions you had? What, uh, how did God use this message to challenge you? We have other small groups. I don't know if all of them are gonna be going through this series, some do their own studies. But if you're interested in doing that and saying, yeah, I'd like to try that out even for a few weeks and see what that's like, please contact me and we'll get you connected. Um, we don't have small groups all over in every single possible uh, scheduling window, but I think we have enough. But if you're intentional and want to uh, enrich your engagement with this series, we can, we can help you. What's another way that you might be able to dig a little bit deeper, go beyond just a superficial, like, I don't say it's superficial, but go, just go beyond um, maybe like a Sunday morning engagement. Carrie? Awesome. So free app through the word. You can download it and it has a little a reading and then a devotional teaching reflection on that chapter. And so you could um, yeah, start First Corinthians you know, tomorrow and through the word. That's going to take you to, um, not, not, that, not that many days, like just a little over two weeks to get through it. And then when you were done that, what did you do? You could do it again. You can do it again, and you can do it again. I'm a big fan of repetition. I like to put on, um, I was doing yard work yesterday, for a little over two hours, I just had First Corinthians, the whole book, audio Bible, David Suchet, Spectre Poirot, sweet, reading the uh, UK NIV Bible. And I put it on 1.25 speed, it's a little slow. And then, I just listened to that, and I got through, it takes about an hour to read slowly through First Corinthians, you know, 45 minutes on 1.25 speed. And I just did that. And, I, just, and, and I, I, I want to go through the book fully in one go once a week. Just listen to it. And I just want to immerse myself in it. So immersion could be one way. Any other ideas before we move into the first few chapters? So we're talking about getting curious and looking into some things, maybe uh, looking into a devotional or uh, Something on Google, it could be a YouTube video study, talking to a friend, small group. Any other ideas? Those are really good. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Commentaries are books in the Bible by um, usually theologians who have devoted their life, often not to study the whole Bible, to one particular book in light of the Bible. Think of often a good commentary can give tremendous insight into the context, help you to notice things you might not have noticed before, connect dots to application that would maybe have never occurred to you. Now, a lot of people don't know where to start for commentaries. If you Google First Corinthians commentaries, there's going to be a lot of them. Gordon Fee, uh, it's uh, First Letter to Corinthians, is the title of the commentary. It's considered to be like the high watermark for commentaries on Corinthians. Um, if you want to go through it, 
but it's pretty expensive to buy. I have it in digital format, and I can copy and paste chapters at a time if you want to do that. If there's resources that you need or want for your own personal study, you're not sure where to look, start with me, because I can be a resource broker and get you some of that information. And using a commentary is a bit more unidentifiable study manager angle where you're really analyzing the text, and it's super, super awesome and important. Good, so we have quite a few there. Um, we'll move into a, an exercise next week, I think, but I'm going to skip over um, those next few pages, uh, Julia. Let's look at the first three chapters of Corinthians, because in... Sorry, first three, first three verses. <laughs> Clear your Sunday schedule, everybody. It's, it's go time. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This gives us a lot of information. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, just at first pass, no study, no deep reflection, just at first pass, what are words or um, phrases that stand out to you? This is Paul's opening address. He's framing who is this coming from and who is it being directed to. So what stands out to you? Maybe that you notice it's obvious or that you haven't noticed before. Called to be holy, right. Paul is going to frame this whole letter around what does it mean to live a holy life. And a holy life means a life separated from the status quo and devoted to God. So sometimes we think of holy as simply being like, oh, good. But it's a little bit different. It's being good for someone or a larger purpose. It's being separated and distinct such that someone else is honored, and in this case, uh, God. What else do you notice there in the first few verses? Who writes the letter? Right, so Paul is saying, he's invoking uh, the authority given to him. He says, I have been called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is a sent one. Uh, in the first century, there were disciples, which was the general name for anybody who has devoted their life to Jesus. But Jesus chose a limited number of apostles to go and establish churches and be the teaching authority because when this letter is written, just so, I, just so, I mean, like there's no, there's no Bibles. This letter is one of the first communications this community gets on how to live out the Christian faith. They've been taught by Paul, we're going to learn, for about a year and a half, but they couldn't do like devotionals. There was no through the word Bible app. Um, they had lots of questions, and God sent apostles to be teaching authorities to teach people not just what to believe, but how to live in a way that pleases God. What else do you notice there? Who's the author of the letter? 
not a trick question. It's Paul, right? That guy in the video, Acts chapter 9, converted from a life of murderous threats against the church. Paul is about uh, five years, and he's born about five years after Jesus. So he's a contemporary of Jesus. Most people think that when Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin before his crucifixion, Paul is absolutely a part of that Sanhedrin council. There's, there's no doubt about it. A very prominent religious leader in the first century and sort of like the inquisitor and executioner of people of uh, that were called the way. At this point in history, they're not called Christians yet. They're just called people of the way. But he also has someone who's helping him to write the letter. We don't know to what extent this Sosthenes is involved in writing the letter or just like a scribe, but Paul names him. And whenever you have a weird detail, like a name like that, that you're like, oh, I don't recognize that name. You should Google it. That's super interesting. Turn to Acts chapter 18 in your Bibles. It's in your, the handout as well. This is all the information we have about Paul's time in Corinth. So I want to read through it quickly because it gives us insight into this letter. So after this, Paul is on a, a second missionary journey. He has three. He goes into Corinth after leaving Athens because he's kicked out of Athens. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And so Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And every Sabbath, he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'm only going to preach to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. There is, in a nutshell, the attitude of the Apostle Paul. You don't want me here? You hate my guts? No problem. I'll go to someone else. And then he sets up camp next door. <laughs> and he starts preaching it to you. That'd be like someone saying, this church is heretical. And then they set up right outside of the sidewalk every Sunday and start teaching. Paul was as gutsy, um, chutzpah-filled, a passionate Jesus follower. So he sets up shop next door in this guy's house. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household, they come to faith. And many Corinthians who heard, believed, and were baptized. And then one night, Jesus spoke to Paul in a vision and said, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed here for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. One of the longest stays of Paul in his whole life in one place. Now we find out why he has to leave. Verse 12, when Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, which is ancient, uh, well, the name that Rome called Greece, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, brought him into the court. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law, like the Old Testament. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, listen, if you Jews were making a complaint about some kind of misdemeanor or crime, then it would make sense for me to listen to you. But this, he kind of says, this is an in-house issue. This is on you guys. This involves questions about words and names and your own law. So settle this matter yourselves. I'm not going to be the judge of this. 
So they had them ejected from the court. And then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. That's the first time Sosthenes is mentioned. The next is 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We don't know any details, but what we know is just like Paul, Sosthenes was a prominent member of a local Jewish synagogue in a very prominent city. And he was beaten in, um, in response to his people saying, I think the inference is he didn't do enough to get Paul in trouble with the Roman authorities. So that was their way of saying, um, this is our vote of no confidence in you, so to speak. And I like to picture Paul, who lives beside the synagogue now, being the, one of the first people to get down on his hands and knees and embrace Sosthenes and kind of say, like, dude, I've been there. Would you like to hear the good news about Jesus? And again, we're not given any details. That's complete conjecture of the imagination. You can let your imagination go wild. But I think it's a beautiful grace note that is there right at the start of 1 Corinthians, that this is a letter written by and through two men who were about as hardened and far from God as you could get and then had experienced God's grace in their life, which changed everything. And now they were writing to a church who was trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus. But they weren't writing with the pride that comes from saying, we're super important, you know who we are, we've got it all together, I can't, we can't believe some of the stuff that we're reading. They're writing as pastors, saying, yeah, this is a hard road, but God is doing a work in you. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. These were men with hearts to see this church thrive. A little about Corinth um, before we close. Where we are in the story, um, Paul converts to faith about two or three years after Jesus is resurrected and ascended, so about 37 AD. Um, he begins establishing churches through missionary journeys starting in 47 AD, so 10 years later. He establishes the church in Corinth, we just read about that, around 50 AD. And he writes 1 Corinthians about five years later when he's in Ephesus, he writes the first letter to them. They've been established. He hears a report about how they're really struggling within, like there's tension within the church and they're being um, sort of pulled in all kinds of different, really destructive directions. And so he writes this letter to sort of get them back on track. He wants them to understand the implication of their faith. If Jesus came and died for their sins and rose victorious, and now his spirit is poured out, that means something beyond just like, oh, I go to, I go to church on Sunday and I just kind of like believe stuff. It changes every dimension of your life, how you think about life, how you engage life, the big things, the small things. And this is happening in a city called Corinth. Julia, let's cue up that video because I think this does a really good job. Corinth's rivalry with Corinth. the city-state of Athens lasted for hundreds of years. During the period of the Achaean League in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, Corinth was the largest city and eventually made the capital. However, in 146 BC, 
the Romans destroyed Corinth, and it was mostly abandoned. About 100 years later, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth. As a Roman colony, the city was soon filled with freedmen, Roman army veterans, locals, and transplants from elsewhere. The character of the new city was changed into one that was very Roman. Then, in 27 BC, Augustus made Corinth the capital of the Achaia province. Roman Corinth was located on an isthmus with two harbors, making it one of the hubs of the Roman world. The harbor of Sencrie on the east led to the Aegean Sea, and the harbor of Lechium on the west led to the Adriatic. A paved road called the Diolkos connected the two harbors, which allowed the movement of goods, animals, people, and small boats nearly four miles across the isthmus. As a major transit hub, commerce thrived and the government collected plenty of taxes. About 15 or so years ago, I visited Corinth when doing a series on ancient Greece, and I learned the story of the great Corinth Canal. In short, the idea to build four miles of canal through this strategic land goes all the way back to 602 BC, when Periandros, the tyrant of Corinth, wanted to accomplish the feat. He was scared out of the project, however, by a soothsayer who allegedly told him that building a canal through the isthmus would incur the rage of the gods. Thereafter, different leaders from different empires made several different failed attempts. As you can see, you gotta cut through a lot of rock. It wasn't until 1893 and the invention of dynamite that the Corinth Canal was finally open. In 1858, Corinth was destroyed by a major earthquake. As a result, the modern city of Corinth was rebuilt about three miles northeast of here. This allowed archaeologists to start significant explorations in the ancient city. Excavations have now uncovered much of Roman period Corinth, including an agora, a forum, a city council building, gymnasiums, baths, a 14,000-seat theater, and multiple temples to mythological gods. This was the Corinth that Paul visited when he came here in 50 AD. It was the capital of Achaia province and the seats of Roman power in the region being controlled by a proconsul. Corinth was probably the fifth largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome, Alexandria, Ephesus and Antioch, and since it was a hub of travel and commerce with a population of over 200,000 people, it was yet another location for the gospel to have far-reaching impact. Let's return to the book of Acts. Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts 18, 1-4 Luke tells us that after Paul arrived in Corinth, he soon met Priscilla and Aquila, fellow tent makers who had been deported from Rome by Emperor Claudius. According to first century records, Claudius tried to rid Rome of Judeans and Christians in about 49 AD. 
Now, Paul and his new friends may have sold their tents right here, this location, in what would have been shops at the western side of the Forum. Paul also followed his normal custom of going to the synagogue to preach the gospel. Now we're going to learn about Corinth, uh, kind of like unfolding the layers of like an onion as we move through this series. But part of what part of what I want you to at least have a framework for this morning is how similar the Corinth of that ancient world was to the culture that we find ourselves in. It was a culture that loved entertainment. And although you've, has anyone been to Corinth here? Okay, so only one person. You've all been to the Corinthian theater. Do you know what it was called? The Odeon. So if you've been to Cineplex Odeon, that's where that comes from. It's named after the ancient Greek theater, uh, one of which uh, at Corinth. So that, oh, whoa. I mean, yeah, this is, a, this is a city that literally has cultural ramifications 2,000 years later. It was a place of philosophy and ideas. I'm going to read about the competing philosophies and worldviews that were on offer to anybody in that city and how Paul challenges all of them through faith in Christ. It was a place of massive economic prosperity um, because of the, the location and the ability to trade goods. Um, it was a place that was obsessed with sports. Every two years, it held an athletic competition called the Isthmian Games. So not the Olympic Games, which was every four years. The Isthmian Games, and that uh, pulled people all over uh, the Mediterranean world. And it led to sort of an underground massive economy because when all these athletes and all these visitors came into the series or uh, into the city, you couldn't um, build housing or fit for purpose housing. So what did you have to build for the athletes and the spectators to build tents, right? So Paul and Quilla and Priscilla become tent makers. They look at the opportunity around them and say, oh, we can make a living in the city by doing that. They're creating shelters probably for athletes. Religion, you've got a number of temples that we're going to learn about dedicated to the God of... These are powerfully impressive temples um, that are prominently displayed. Temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sexuality and beauty. Uh, temple dedicated to Poseidon, the god of sea and commerce. Apollo, the god of oracles and healing and illumination. Uh, the, uh, Eclipius, the god specifically of healing, and Demeter, the god of harvest and fertility. This was a very religious, we would call it like spiritually eclectic group of people. Uh, and it had uh, tremendous, religion had a, a much more integrated role into society than we think of it as uh, we might, might uh, think of it today. And so in this place, Paul establishes the first group of Christians ever, right? Christians didn't start worshiping at the first Baptist church of Corinth. There was, there was nothing. Paul comes, meets some people, and then things spread. 
And as we understand more about Corinth and the context, we're going to see just how amazing it is, miraculous, that the church even survives here, yet alone builds momentum over the next few decades. Often in spite of the fact that as we're going to read in Corinthians, the Corinthians are pretty messed up in a lot of ways. And maybe that's one of the biggest encouragements that this series can offer all of us here. If you've ever struggled with the fact that you're like, I don't feel super focused and on point as a Christian. My life feels really out of sorts. I feel really immature in a lot of ways. I can't really understand how God could use someone like me. I'm a part of a very imperfect church. It's not very impressive. There's not, it's not a, we're not an influential church. Like what, what dent can we possibly make? Especially just regular people like us. Those are the same insecurities. I guarantee you they're welling up uh, in those early Corinthian believers. And as you read through this book, I really hope that God plants in me and in you a new courage to say, look what God does with imperfect people. Look what God does with imperfect churches that, yes, have to be taught. Their faith is sincere, but they're really messing things up in certain areas. But there's grace and there's power. And there's relevance for us as we move into the city, into this letter, and ask ourselves, how does Jesus change how we see life and how we engage it? Let's pray. God, thank you for this letter. And as we move into it, I pray that you would do what only you can through your word by your spirit. You'd bring conviction and challenge and strengthening. And even as this week we begin to do our own research and investigation and exploration and reading and reflection that you would set your truth uh, within us, that you would open our eyes, and that uh, this would be transformative for us as individuals and couples and families and as a church. Thank you for your word, God. We pray and ask that you would answer these prayers in your best way and that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in our lives. Amen.